everybody. Grab a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 5. If you weren't able to grab one of the scripture journals yet for this series through the Sermon on the Mount, feel free to go grab one. They're on the, the tops of the Bible shelves. I would love for you to, to grab one of those and take some notes because, well, you know why. Note takers go to heaven. This world gives us much to mourn over. When we look back at history, at countless wars and atrocities, it can be overwhelming. In fact, of the 3,400 years of recorded human history, the world has been without war for 268 of them, 8% of the time. But we don't even have to look to the past to see why the world would give us reasons to mourn. We can look at current events. We see the Holocaust of abortion. We see the wretched racism that infects our culture. We see the maligning of morality and nations threatening with war and politics that are fragile at best. But we don't even have to look outside to see reasons to mourn. We just have to look in the mirror. Relationships that imploded, marriages that ended, and children who are rebellious, loss of loved ones, Job loss, job dissatisfaction, it's everywhere. The world is broken and beyond repair. There is much to mourn over. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Really? I mean, I think as you read through the Beatitudes, these eight statements Jesus makes to start the Sermon on the Mount, these eight blessings... I think it's easy to see the blessing found in some of them, but this one is kind of a ridiculous picture because you don't walk up to a graveside and pronounce the blessing that's inherent in that moment. So what is Jesus saying to us? Well, the Bible has much to say about mourning. Back in the Old Testament, after the exile, some of the Jews were still in Babylon and some had been allowed to go back to Jerusalem Nehemiah was still in Babylon, and many of his friends and coworkers had already been allowed back to Jerusalem, and he asked them about the condition of the city. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, they said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. When the patriarch Job was struck with unimaginable suffering, his three friends came and mourned with him. Job chapter 2, verse 11. When three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their names were Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. Well, those are good friends. They've traveled some distance just to be with him, and they sit in silence, mourning with him for a week. The, the, the good things that they show here kind of ruined after they open their mouth and start talking because everything that they say to him is just terrible advice. But in this moment, they get it right. They mourn with him over the suffering. 
Jesus himself mourned, standing outside of the tomb of Lazarus, his great friend. Jesus weeps. Later, he will stand looking over the city of Jerusalem and he will mourn. Luke 19, verse 41. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not accept your opportunity for salvation. And a couple of decades later in 70 AD, that's exactly what the Romans did when they invaded Jerusalem and obliterated the city. Biblically, people mourn when things are not the way they should be. We mourn over things that could have been. We mourn over things that should have been. A marriage that should have lasted. A friendship that could have been great. An opportunity that could have been life-changing. A life that should have lasted longer. That's what Jesus is talking about in this great verse in Matthew 5. He says God blesses us when we see things that they're not the way they're supposed to be. So what should we mourn over? Number one, the world is broken. We should mourn because the world is broken. This world is not right. And virtually anybody on any side of any argument will agree, at least at some level, with that statement. The world is not right. This is not how God intended it to be. We see God's original intent when we go back to the very beginning, to the first few chapters of the opening book of Genesis. In the Garden of Eden, we see a world that is perfect. It is a world that is safe, a world that is filled with innocence. And now you and I live in a world that is none of those things. Our world is imperfect. It is unsafe. It is corrupt. It is broken. And what made the difference between Genesis 1 and 2 and now? The answer is Genesis 3. Because sin entered the picture. Satan comes on the scene in Genesis 3 into this perfect world that God had made where Adam and Eve have everything they could ever want or need. And in that place, Satan has the audacity to offer them more. Open up your eyes. God is holding out on you. There's a better life to be had than one living with God. He was right. Because our eyes were opened. And because of our disobedience to God, humanity has seen things that otherwise we never would have seen. We have seen devastation. We have seen suffering. We see death. More is not always better. When we feel this sense of loss, we feel a sense of sadness. Sometimes we feel indignation when we look at what we see in the world, but we, we understand intuitively at soul level, this is not right. And Jesus says we're blessed when we get to that place because we realize that our hope is not here. It is somewhere else. Number two, we are broken. I mean, it's easy to take shots at the world around us, right? And talk about all its brokenness and what it produces and how bad it can be. But we don't even have to do that to talk about brokenness. We simply look inward. We're broken. Go back to the Garden of Eden at creation. We find that humanity, we, us, we are created in the image of God. 
Meaning we are created to reflect His character, to mirror the nature of our Creator. How good are you at that? God is a God of justice. We can easily take advantage of others. We can make everything about us. That's not justice, that's injustice. God is a God of mercy and compassion. We can feel our hearts grow cold and hardened and cynical. We can become jaded to the pain around us. God is a God of holiness, of utter separation from creation. We can blend in with a fallen world without even realizing we've done it. We don't measure up, right? We are not who we are supposed to be. And the Apostle Paul helpfully sums up the experience of that kind of reality. Romans chapter 7, verse 15, he says, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Well, that pretty much sums up my life. How about you? This is our reality. Because of our sin, we are forced to acknowledge that we are spiritually bankrupt, which is what Jesus said in the verse right before this in verse 3. Blessed are those who realize their spiritual poverty, that before God they can offer nothing of good to Him. When sin came into the world in Genesis 3, its effect was comprehensive and catastrophic. The perfect world was devastated. The relationship that we had with God was severed. The innocence that existed in human relationships was marred. We are broken. And we, we mourn when we recognize these two truths. The world is broken, and we are broken. Hopelessly so, it seems. And the only right response is to mourn. And really, that's where you see the connection between verse 3 and verse 4, that they go together. Verse 3, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for Him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who can't do it. And He blesses those who mourn that because of their sin, they can't do it. We, we mourn over our, our inability to fix the problem. We're spiritually bankrupt. There's nothing we can do to fix that. We don't have what it takes. God is holy. We are unholy. And the only right reaction to sinful brokenness is to mourn its reality. We have dishonored the God who made us. We have offended the Lord who saved us. And sadly, there are a bunch of folks who don't feel that way. They don't agree with that. And not only do they not mourn, they don't give their sin a second thought. Some even brag about it. Years ago, I did a sermon series where I had people write a letter to their former selves. I tried it here a couple of years ago, and like three of you did it, so it didn't really work. But once upon a time, out in the lobby of the church, we had hundreds of these letters posted on the walls in the lobby of the church. And every single week when more of those letters were added, I read every single one of them. And the overwhelming majority 
viewed their past decisions, their sinful decisions, as something to be respected. There was this assumption of personal awesomeness that I am awesome right now and all of those things made me the awesome man or woman I am right now. Therefore, the answer is to repeat them so that I can become the same amazing person I currently am. That is the epitome of human worldly wisdom. So they would write things like, these things made you who you are. Go down that same road. Make that same decision. What? Where is the remorse? Where is the repentance? Where is the mourning over sinful decisions that hurt you, that hurt the loved ones around you, and broke a bunch of things in your life? What about the mourning over the sin that dishonored your Lord? Those things made you who you are. That's the point. You could be so much better. You could have been so much happier. You could have been so much holier. What could have been? So we don't defiantly defend our actions. We don't disregard them with some apathetic dismissal. Like, ah, well, everybody's a sinner, so this way it goes. We recognize our spiritual bankruptcy and we mourn over it. Friends, if God really is holy, how could we ever stand in his presence and brag over something that dishonored him? But notice what Jesus says about those who mourn over such things. They will be comforted. That's good news. The blessing is found in the comfort. So how are we comforted in this? World's broken, we're broken. How do you, how do you find comfort in that? And number one, the world is broken, but Jesus is going to fix it. Romans chapter 8 says that all of creation, everything, is, is under the, the curse of sin and has been groaning in that brokenness. It's been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. That it's in pain, ready to give birth to something new. And here's the new, Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. There will be a new earth, a new creation. And all of the things that cause mourning are gone. There's no death, sorrow, crying, pain. God will be with us. The relationship will be restored and it will be a place that is perfect. It will be a place that is safe. It will be a place that is filled with innocence. God will restore what he originally created. We've talked about this before in Matthew 19, 24. 
Jesus speaks this incredible promise to those who have sacrificed much to follow Jesus. He says, whatever it is that you've given up, you will get all of that back plus more. He says, at the renewal of all things. The word he uses for renewal translates new Genesis. At the new Genesis, the new creation. So friends, God blesses those who mourn that the world is broken because you'll be comforted because you will be reminded that your hope is not here, it is there. Your hope is not in now, it is for then. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, We always pray for you and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. So how are we comforted in this? Number two, we are broken, but Jesus is going to fix us. We might be broken now. That's not always going to be the case. We will receive new bodies, redeemed bodies, not just a replacement for the body you have, but the body you've always wanted. Thank God. That's a great promise, right? That's a good one. We will be remade to be what God originally intended us to be. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 for we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh but it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared us for this. And as a guarantee, he's given us his Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 22. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he's promised us. This is something that doesn't get talked about very often, but what a great promise this is. God will remake the world and God will remake us. And the, the beautiful part is this Remaking starts now. Back to 2 Corinthians 5. Notice what he said in verse 5. God himself has prepared us for this, and as a guarantee, he's given us his Holy Spirit. When we place our trust in Jesus, we are not left on our own to try to figure out how to follow Jesus, how to become more like Jesus. God gives us his Holy Spirit to live within, to empower us to live rightly for him, and the Holy Spirit begins the work of transformation in us now. And I think interestingly enough, in Matthew 5.4, when Jesus says, God blesses those who mourn for they'll be comforted, the word he uses for comfort is the word paraclete. It means the one who comes alongside just so happens to be the exact same word that Jesus uses in John 16 to define and describe the role of the Holy Spirit. So we will be comforted by the Comforter. 
And God the Holy Spirit is working in us and transforming us even now until heaven is our permanent home and the process is completed. Ephesians chapter 1, the end of verse 13. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So yes, the world is broken. We are broken. But Jesus is going to remake all of it. He's going to remake all of us. So we are blessed when we realize our hope is not in this broken world. It is not in our broken efforts. Our hope is in heaven. We're blessed when God the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, lives within and transforms us day by day from the inside out. That is our hope. Who is it that you know that needs that hope? Who right now doesn't have it? We, at the beginning of the year, said we're going to be regularly talking about who's the one person you can pray for. Pray for one. Friend, family, neighbor, co-worker, who does not know Jesus, that you could pray for intentionally every single day, that God would open up his heart to the truth of the gospel, that God would open up doors of opportunity for you to share that gospel with them? Who is it? Who needs that hope? Because it is your job to tell them. And friends in the room who have not placed their trust in Jesus, you can have this hope. It can be yours. You can have the hope that today, that right now, is not all there is. You can have the hope of eternity. You can have the hope that the Lord will remake you. You can have the hope that you can be a part of this recreated world. And you can have that hope in Jesus alone. And friends, without Him, that hope is not yours. But it can be. So you need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins and rose from the dead. You need to repent of your sin and turn to Jesus. You need to confess Jesus as Lord. You need to be united with Jesus as you are immersed in the waters of baptism. When the, ser the service is over, I'll be out at Next Steps in the lobby. And if you do not have this hope, come talk to me because there is no point in leaving today without it. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed that as Jesus tells us, we are to address you as Father. That you invite us to come to you. That as we read in one of the verses that you've adopted us as sons and daughters into your family. And now that we can call you Father is miraculous. It is incredible. Because we don't deserve that. Because we were not naturally in your family. We had to be adopted in. We were naturally on our own outside of your family. Under your wrath because of sin, we, according to Ephesians 2, were dead in our sins. But by your mercy, you raised us to life. By your mercy, you've then adopted those who are yours into your family. 
and said, we can call you Father. And because of that, we have infinite hope for the recreation of the world, for the recreation of ourselves, for what will be that you've guaranteed to us as an inheritance. And for those who have not placed their trust in Jesus, will your Holy Spirit press into them the hopelessness that they have? so that you can draw them to yourself so they could find hope. And we acknowledge together that this, the one source of our hope is Jesus alone by his work for us on the cross. So for the next few moments, we take a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice and we remind ourselves yet again the sacrificed body and shed blood of Jesus that forgives us that grants to us eternity, that indwells us with God the Holy Spirit so that now we can be people who are defined by hope. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.